Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, I am joined by my friend, Oliver Crisp. He's the principal of St. Mary's College and the head of the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. In other words, when it comes to white dudes doing theology, Oliver is a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, what an intro. I didn't get, I didn't warn you I was going to start that way. That sounds like a little bit of a punch and patch. I actually think you are a really brilliant guy and a lovely guy doing good work. And and to the extent that people care or should care, if you are, you know, using your whatever your whatever white male privilege you may or may not actually have to sort of push the boundaries of a community toward like more interesting and expansive thought. I think you are doing that. I will just say that in case anybody is tempted to write you off, which I don't think you should do anyway. Too kind. Too kind. I appreciate Listeners might remember you, especially if they've been around for a while. We did an episode very early on about reformed theology, and I think it was called, you have permission to give reformed theology a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. As a sort of constitutionally anti-reformed type myself, I thought, who better to have on than Oliver? And I thought <laughs> I had a great conversation with you. I thought I really yeah. enjoyed it. And as a consequence, you became a Presbyterian pastor. Is that right? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> since then, I left my Presbyterian church. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, uh, well, nice try. Uh, nice not, not because it was Presbyterian, though. No, sure, sure. So if people want to hear you and I talk about, like, Reformed theology in general, mm. Josh will put a link in the show notes to that episode. What we're going to talk about today is this idea of depravity. Either depravity or total depravity. You're going to tell us if there's a meaningful difference between those terms. Right. Uh, somebody emailed me or messaged me. I can't remember who. I apologize. It would be good to sort of get one of those like atonement theories type episodes where like lay out the different views of depravity. And then mm-hmm. I, of course, will be interested to talk with you about it from an evolutionary perspective and a psychological perspective and all that. So, Oliver, yeah, when and where does the term depravity sort of enter the theological lexicon? 
Depravity is associated with the doctrine of sin, obviously, and especially the doctrine of original sin, right? So original sin is roughly the doctrine according to which human beings are generated with this kind of morally corrupt condition or this this kind of moral alienation from God that's going to give birth to actual sins once they reach an age of discernment and can start making decisions for themselves. That's a very yeah. rough and ready way of thinking about it, but it'll do for now. And depravity is usually associated with the formation of the doctrine of sin, but original sin develops over time and you get these different things that are kind of bolted onto a doctrine of sin. And depravity is something that becomes part of the lexicon sort of certainly from the Reformation onwards, particularly someone like Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion. Not that we are as bad as we could be, but that in every area of our moral formation and our moral lives, we are falling short of the glory of God and we're failing to live up to a kind of moral standard, as it were. It's from the Reformation onwards when the doctrine of original sin becomes a real battleground uh, over which Christians of different sorts of uh, ecclesial backgrounds fight. Kind of uh, way of distinguishing one position from from another, you know, a way of sticking your flag in the ground is to say, "Hey, we actually think that human beings aren't just bad, but they are depraved. They are totally depraved." And this is an important constituent of how we understand our alienation from God and why we need salvation. Something like that. So there are different versions of original sin, just like there are different versions of depravity. Let me give you one version of original sin that I am comfortable with. Something like, if you are a human being who reaches a certain stage of mental development, Mm -hmm. then you will sin. You will make Mm. decisions where you privilege yourself over others, where you contribute to suffering needlessly, however, you know, fill that out however you want. Mm -hmm. You will eventually get there if you develop to that point because it's baked into the cake. Now, can I believe that without believing in any version of depravity or is that essentially depravity, what I just said, in in some form? In answer to the question, you can believe that without believing a, a doctrine of depravity, yes. I don't think depravity is baked in. Okay. You've already indicated there are different ways of thinking about original sin and of sin in general. Some of those include a doctrine of depravity. Some of them do not. I think it depends just on how serious a moral condition you think fallen human beings are in. If like some of the magisterial reformers, I mean, if you're one of those sorts of people, then you're more likely to be on the end of the spectrum that thinks you're not just sinful, but you are in a very parlous moral state before God because of the alienation of human beings from God. And that includes you being depraved in some sense. One of the things we're talking about when we talk about depravity, it is a state that a human being is in. It is a description of a human being. You are or are not depraved. Right. But then it also seems like what we're talking about is actually a mental state or a dispositional state that God has toward us or does not have toward us. And the depravity seems to hinge partly on that as well. You know what I mean? Am I, yeah. isn't I, am I getting that right? I think I, I think I get what you mean. I mean, I certainly think that the thought is that God has a certain disposition towards sin. And to the extent okay. that human beings have this kind of really serious moral condition uh, of original sin, if you think that that includes some doctrine of depravity, like it's really bad, then you might think that God has a particular disposition towards that. There's an old hackneyed saying, God um, loves the sin, hates the sin. But I certainly think that in the kind of Reformation theology where this becomes important, you can see as a kind of corollary to this, the idea that God is wroth with sin and must um, treat sin with great moral seriousness. And that's one of the reasons why we need the atoning work of Christ in the first place. Okay, so the way that that system works then is maybe starting with sin is a really serious problem in in the world. Right. And by God's goodness, sort of is by definition, hates sin. People can fill this in the way that they sort of heard it in colloquial terms. But like, in some sense, human beings choose that sin in in a free choice, 
also for the reformers, in some crucial sense, we all share in that guilt, like we would have also chosen it too, or, or something like that. And that that moment, the fall, that's got such serious consequences because sin is so bad that yeah. we need something really strong to counteract it, like the atonement of Christ. And yes. we need the heavy goods to sort yeah. of undo that. And so in that framework, while I'm alive on earth as a person, the part of me that is invariably wedded to sin, God mm. is going to treat very seriously with, he's going to essentially hate it because it is sin. Right. But thanks to the atonement, there's sort of a way out for me with right. God, right? That's basically it, yeah. I mean, so some of the reformers talk about sin as a kind of disease. We might have a strong reaction, a kind of gut reaction to a particular disease, disease and be like, oh, that's awful, I can't bear that. That's mm. the sort of idea that uh, I think the reformers had with respect to God's view of sin. But I do think we want to separate out a couple of things here. One is original sin as this kind of moral corruption, as they would have seen it, that we're all born with as a consequence of the kind of what we might call the primal sin or the first sin of uh, the putative Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But mm -hmm. they commit the first sin and that affects everybody else downstream of them. And we all are then born with this corruption. So that's one thing, the original sin. And that gives rise to actual sins if you live long enough, right? If you become right. you know, an adult human being, or at least you've reached the age of reason, you start committing actual sins, then the original sin gives birth to actual sin. But I think we need to distinguish that from original guilt. So you were talking about how, oh yeah, we're somehow caught up in the guilt of the original sin. Now, of course, there are many in that kind of Reformation tradition who do think that human beings aren't just sinful, but are guilty of just, you know, having this kind of moral corruption independent of any actual sins I commit. You're already guilty from the get-go, right? right? If you died without committing a single actual sin, you'd nevertheless be guilty of having original sin, okay? But I think we need to separate that out, the original guilt bit from the original sin bit. One of the reasons why we want to do that is not everybody thinks that because just because you've got original sin, you're also a bearer of original guilt. You know, there right. are plenty children, of children, babies, right? Right. So you might say, look, you might have original sin, like a kind of moral disease. That doesn't mean you're guilty of having it any more than someone who has a congenital disease from their parents is guilty in virtue of being born in that condition. Yeah. So one way we could frame this conversation is any particular view of depravity, what is it saying about original sin? Is it saying right. anything about original guilt? Yes. So if original sin is the, that's the disease, that's the sort of the propensity to sin that inevitably right. given enough development and time, you will choose bad over good in yep. self-interest or something like that. Hmm. And then original guilt is before you do that, when you are still two years old, you are guilty. You are culpable before God yep. and whomever for right. the fact that you were given that. Now that, can we just say that, that that's like ridiculous and monstrous? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, many people think it is ridiculous, monstrous, but there are plenty of people who defend the view. And it's, you know, it's had very important defenders, like plenty of people in the reform tradition, uh, including Calvin Zwingli, who you might think of as fountainheads of that tradition, who don't have a doctor of original guilt. So I think I'm in, I hope I'm in good company. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, are there like just sort of popular names, theologians or pastors or something who you know that their theology does include original guilt? Like if someone's trying to map this out, like who might they know? I, I think people like the John Pipers of this world would hold original guilt. Yeah. Those sorts of people. I don't know this, but I imagine that someone like Tim Keller in New York would probably hold to a doctor of original guilt. Okay. So I imagine anybody who's committed to a sort of Westminster confession style of a reformed theology is likely to hold to a doctor of original guilt. This is the thing that I have been kind of dancing around theologically for, for 10 years, I think, with regard to this question is, I don't have any problem with original sin, or especially the sort of, as I understand the more orthodox version, they'll sometimes call it ancestral sin. Yeah. It's, it's a capacity-based view, right. right? It's like, right. once I develop the capacities, I will sin, it's baked into the cake. I think that that is... 
eminently reasonable (laughs) and uh, frankly, psychologically quite sophisticated. You know, we can see into the future. We can have a worry about scarcity. We can and we can therefore privilege our own security. Like, I think God is very gracious about this stuff and understands the limitations, the, the sort of the hand that we're dealt as as homo sapiens. Right. But the original guilt part, I think that's the part I find so, frankly, kind of bonkers. No offense to 20 year ago, you, Oliver. <laughs> um, and and I, I see how people can reason their way back to it. Like they can, you can back into that from having some profound ex- salvation experience, maybe. Yeah. And you go, oh my gosh, this has been such a change in my life. It must have saved me from something so heinous in order Mm. for me to have experienced it as so beautiful, this sort Mm. of like equal and opposite reaction kind of an idea. So I can see someone backing into it that way and not meaning for it to be monstrous. I mean, do you you think that that's how some people get there? I think what you've just described is, I would think is pretty common. And I certainly think something like that was true of me. I certainly think that I started off with something like that very strong existential sort of change. And then you kind of try and look around for some theological justification after the fact of what's gone on experientially. And original sin sounds good, but original sin plus original guilt sounds even more plausible, you know, something like that. Uh, And then you end up with the kind of full-orbed, high-octane sort of reformed account of original sin plus original guilt. Yeah. That, okay. That's probably how people get there. So, okay. So as we discuss then the various options, the various views people hold of depravity, one of the lenses we can use to audit them or, or understand them is they're all going to include original sin unless they are rejecting depravity, I would assume. I'm assuming so too. Yeah. It'd okay. be odd to have a view of depravity without original sin. I but, mean, you could have that view, I suppose, if you're a secularist, but I mean, I'm guessing right. most people of a theological persuasion think those two things go together. But then they won't all include an idea of original guilt, correct? Right. And then another question we can ask is, do each of these views rely on a sort of momentary fall, capital F, right. in history and a original an original sin mm-hmm. by Adam and Eve or whoever the first representatives are of humanity before God. So do they have that? Is there another sort of, you know, criteria that that we should be thinking about that we're going to run each one through? Well, I certainly think that traditionally coming out of the kind of Reformation, you those people who hold to the kind of doctrine we're talking about, an original sin doctrine, or an original sin plus original guilt doctrine, they are usually looking back to the idea of a historical fall and historical Adam and Eve. That's definitely true. But there's a further question of whether you know one requires the other, so to speak. You know, if you hold to something like a Reformation version of original sin, or even this kind of what I'm calling the high octane doctrine with original guilt baked in as well, do you have to have? Uh, a primal pair? Do you have to have an, uh, an Adam and Eve committing the primal or the first sin in order for your view to make sense? I don't think that is a requirement of the view, all things considered, even if a lot of people think one with the other makes a lot of sense. You know, you might say there's good fit between those two things, but I don't think it's required. So I think there's scope to hold to a non-historical account of the fall or um, some kind of rather more vague account of the fall, by which I mean, I don't mean vague in the sense like, wow, we don't exactly know what happened. I just mean vague in the sense that you don't necessarily have to commit yourself to an historic human pair from which we're all descended, right? Okay, should we just start going through these options then? Sure, yeah, let's do it. So, I mean, if we're looking at views of of sin and original sin, uh, you might think that one of the earliest accounts of this is is something like what today, you've already mentioned it, um, in orthodoxy, in Eastern Orthodoxy, it's called the ancestral sin view. And on that sort of way of thinking, we don't really have a doctrine of original sin at all, which surprises some Protestants when they first hear this, like, what? How can this be? Are Are these people even Christians? But, you know, what you've got in in the East is a rather different way of thinking about how human beings are alienated from God. And principally, it's about a kind of wound rather than some kind of moral corruption that's eaten away at us, 
you know, uh, body and soul. The idea is that somehow human nature is wounded by what happens in the primeval garden. And this ancestral sin is a wound that we need to recover from through being reconciled to God's self. And this idea of, uh, of sin in the context of the Eastern account is, is sort of, as it were, part of a package deal. And the package deal has to do with the Eastern way of thinking about how God reconciles human beings to God's self. So there's this kind of movement of God condescending and accommodating himself to us in order to unite himself to, to human nature, in order to heal human nature. That's really important for them, to heal human nature of this yeah. wound that we may ourselves become partakers of the divine nature. Yeah. Let's spend some time with the Eastern folks. So let's look at these lenses that we've talked about. So this ancestral sin, Orthodox yeah. and early church vision this is original sin, but it is not original guilt. We as human beings are in some sense wounded from without, right? Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's a doctrine of original sin. I think it's just mm. a doctrine of sin. A doctrine of sin. Okay. It's a kind of wound. That's how it's seen. It's not yeah. this corruption idea. So then uh, what makes it original sin is that it is a corruption of what was there before. Like for instance, right. Adam and Eve's perfect state in the garden before sin, some, something like that. That right. there's some perfection that is corrupted and then heritably passed down through some mechanism. And yeah. I'm sure yeah. at some point we'll get to Augustine's idea that that's through sex, right. which <laughs> has its own problems. But so this is not even original sin. It's just this is like why we sin. It's an ex explanation right. for why we sin. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the momentary fall in history question. The way you phrased this was they were wounded in the garden, right? Yeah. And so that would have obviously been how the earliest proponents of this view, they would have assumed that the garden story was, you know, happened, right? They, they would not have a sort of modern historical critical lens by which they considered if it was allegory or poetry or, or whatever, they would have thought, yeah, this is where we come from. Adam and Eve, we have no reason to doubt that uh, in our current context. So they would have said something like that wound happened. Explain to me the mechanism there. Is it as Adam and Eve choose it, they are wounded by the circumstances, by the snake, by God? You know? <laughs> yeah, I think as the wound is associated with a kind of moral dereliction you know, kind of a walking out on God. But yeah. I would also say, I think one of the other things you find in a lot of the fathers, that they're obviously steeped in the biblical texts, but they have a much less kind of literalistic way of reading those texts than many right. modern students. That causes some readers of these historic figures to be, uh, modern readers, that is, to be, you know, somewhat... Um, disconcerted. You know, you can read and think, wait a minute, how are they treating these texts? But I do think that's worth pointing out just because I think the kind of worries that we have about, particularly about the primeval prologue of Genesis 1 to 3 and whether or not there's a historic Adam and Eve, that sort of concern is much more a product of historical factors from the 18th century onwards than, than it was, you know, present in the first millennium of the life of the church. I guess what I'm saying is they probably assumed it was history sort of in the yeah. sense that we mean it today, but right. like mainly because they didn't, they hadn't conceived of some alternative. It wasn't like history versus myth. You know, that right. wasn't really what they were. It's just, they're just pre-modern people. They're just not thinking that way. Yeah. I think that's definitely right. I also like, I think that the idea of the woundedness being, having a wound inflicted as they try to sort of figure out their situation, their world, their place. And of course I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically here. I don't personally think that there was an Adam and Eve in a perfect garden of Eden with a talking snake, but the beauty and power of that story of like, if they were wounded in the garden, then part of the wounding, like any good story is the setup. Right. So it's the description of the world. What kind of world is this? Well, it's a world where there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil that they're not allowed to eat from. That is part of the initial setup of the drama. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be a incredibly accurate and poetic description of the human experience. We are each of us born into 
a setting where the stakes are already laid out. There is already a tree of knowledge of good and evil that we're not supposed to eat from. Like there are our versions of that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, turns out Oliver, <laughs> as you grow older, you are going to be able to like engage in deep love and affection and connection with your fellow humans. Also, anytime someone makes fun of you, you're going to want to wreak havoc and cause suffering toward Mm. other people around you. Like you are born into that scenario where the, the stakes are there and the sort of scene is laid out for you. And then you're going to be wounded inevitably um, and those of us with any memory of elementary school <laughs> will remember this, right? Like it's going to happen. You're going to be wounded by your parents. You're going to be wounded by your siblings, by your teachers, by your friends. So I love that. I'm kind of gushing here about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I can see that it appeals to you. And I can understand why. And I, th- I mean, I think for a lot of uh, modern yeah, 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 yeah. is appealing. And, you know, it's it's had, well, I was going to say a lot of the spotlight. It certainly has some spotlight in the way that that's been picked up by a number of modern philosophers and, and theologians as well who aren't necessarily connected to the Eastern Church. Yeah, I just, I just want to say my kind of argument for that is that it matches just so much better with the science. I yeah. think, yeah. and I don't, you know, I don't know where you're going to land on this, but, but to sort of briefly straw man, <laughs> a sort of intense view of depravity of like, well, it must be that there were these two people at some point who were perfect and mm. all of us would have also been perfect. But then like that was corrupted by this choice they made and that's very serious. And now we need uh, some supernatural means or non-physical means by which God can see us as perfect. I, I just like, I can't look out at the world and map that on to anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. I take this more developmental perspective and I go and I look at my two-year-old who's just like the last week discovering that he can like throw and break and tear things. And so it, I just feel like, gosh, that just, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, I'm going to, I'm going to want to go that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm not the arbiter of truth. Oliver and uh, your theological track record is, is much uh, track record and pedigree are much stronger than mine. So I'm curious to hear where you'll come out. I wanted to make one more connection on this before we move on. Yeah. Something that, that popped up for me, you know, you talked about how the incarnation on this view then Mm. is God taking on flesh, condescending to flesh Mm. in that sense to sort of like come and heal that wound from within Right. And that is why the Eastern church has a stronger view of what's called theosis of, of becoming holier, becoming more and more like Christ in our lives while we are alive on earth. Mm. Uh, And then ultimately being completed after our life on earth. And that makes sense, right? Because it's more developmental. It's Mm. like we have access to the power of the Holy spirit of, you know, the example of the person of Christ. And then our job as we are alive is also more of a developmental thing and less of a binary, make sure that you are saved and more like become like God, become Mm -hmm. more like Christ on Mm -hmm. earth. And I gotta say, man, I am sitting here in 2022 wishing that the white evangelical church had a bit more of a sense of like becoming more Christ-like over mm-hmm. the lifetime and less of a sense of making sure that you're in the in-group and not in the out-group. But now yeah. I'm just, now I'm letting my own wounds talk, apparently. No, I, I understand what you mean. And I certainly find much in the um, Eastern Orthodox account of incarnation and it's it's kind of, fundamentality for making sense of the human predicament to be extremely appealing. Being reformed, I'm fortunate enough to have a couple of people in my own tradition who who have already reached back to a lot of that stuff. Someone like um, T.F. Torrance, one of the great Scottish theologians of the 20th century, or more recently, Kathy Tanner, who teaches still at, at Yale, um, both of them have accounts of, of the incarnation and the work of Christ that are steeped in many ways in this kind of way of thinking about the manner in which the incarnation involves a healing of human nature from the inside out. And I've certainly found that to be very compelling myself. 
I just want to say one thing about what I have found really helpful. It's a bit from Brian McLaren in his book, A New Kind of Christianity, not to be confused with his first bestseller, A New Kind of Christian. And he sort of delineates amongst many traditions between, broadly speaking, a view of sort of human sin and salvation that is basically a ramp up to greater and greater salvation or greater and greater holiness, uh, greater and greater capacity versus a kind of perfection, fall from grace. Now you're down at the bottom and you need some new move to get you back up to perfection or restored perfection. And that's the classic sort of fall sinful Mm. nature salvation brings you back up i'm drawing with my hand like a almost like a square u shape yeah Yeah. right so it's a u shape or it's a a long slow sort of um trajectory up and i'm cards on the table and i found that so helpful because i'm so much more i find something that's ramp like so Mm. much more plausible than something that is uh, horseshoe shaped Yep. for all kinds of reasons, most of which I've basically already said. But I just want to throw that out there to have it in people's minds. Maybe it's something we can apply to some of these additional views. But ancestral sin is basically leaning into that the long slope, right? right? It's like you're born with these capacities. You will be wounded by this world. You can also grow. And here Mm -hmm. to help you grow, Christ becomes human and shows you, dies, defeats the power of sin and death to some degree to sort of make yep. that more doable. I have a harder time with that part, but uh, okay. So that's ancestral sin. Anything else to say on that or should we move on? No, I think that's enough. Yeah. I mean, there's okay. always more to say, but that's of course. Yeah. Now. So yeah. what's this next, what are we calling this next option? Yeah. So I think probably the next option would be the kind of Augustinian account. Okay. His view is the one that's probably more familiar. And that's where we have this kind of corruption that, that we, we bear as a consequence of that first uh, human uh, dereliction. You know, you had this loss of, of, of kind of original righteousness, or original justice that supposedly Adam and Eve bore. And, and as a consequence of that, we have all the kind of moral disorder of uh, human nature that results from it. So for Augustine, he's definitely got that original sin. This is not the ancestral yeah. sin of right. the patristics and the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? So in, in that sense, like, I mean, I know that these pre-modern people aren't thinking about history versus myth the way that we think of it today, but mm. Augustine is sort of committed to what we would call a historical event account yeah. If, yeah. if he's saying, no, no, the two people, Adam and Eve, did this thing, and everyone that that, that procreated from their line, sort right. of like everyone that... Everyone who descends from them sexually, reproductively carries the same thing. Now, this part is obviously a little harder for us to stomach these days, but wouldn't have been 200 years ago even maybe before we had sort of DNA and the theory of evolution and, you know, all all these other things that sort of complicate that that sort of tidy tale. Yeah. I mean, it would probably be worth adding one thing to the Augustinian account, and that is – this notion of what's sometimes called Augustinian realism uh, is disputed whether Augustine himself held this view, but a view that's associated with Augustine's uh, theology is this idea that the reason why we bear original sin now is because somehow we're kind of metaphysically united. We're part of one kind of entity, if you like, one thing that extends across time and space from Adam all the way down through the rest of the human race. So we're kind of organically united to Adam, a bit like, you know, maybe the the acorn that you put in the ground that has a disease that then grows into a diseased oak. All the stages, the later stage of the life of the organism, the tree, have the disease right from the acorn from that get-go. And, and you know, all the later stages of the life of the tree therefore suffer as a consequence. So the idea is that we are, in a very strong sense, organically united with the the human, the rest of the human race going back to the first human pair and Mm -hmm. so for that reason you've got this kind of story about transmission the reason why it's transmitted to the rest of us is because we're part of this kind of organism that exists across time i could look at that two ways i think that's really helpful you bring that up if i look at it biologically scientifically dna anything sort of physical species related or whatever 
I can't really buy it because in physical evolution, there are no big steps. Everything is a ramp. Everything is slowly, gradually growing in complexity. Proto Homo sapiens, you know, other people in the Homo genus, like had most of what we have. Perhaps Neanderthals had all of it. We don't really know. There's no convenient place to draw any sort of a line. I think it makes more sense to say that we are metaphysically united to all of creation, for instance, mm -hmm. than it does that we are metaphysically united to just Homo sapiens starting with Adam. Mm -hmm. I think you can do it, say, well, my theology requires me to say this, but I don't, I don't personally think it can be well defended from the scientific perspective. There are other resources that you might want to help yourself to if you are sympathetic to Augustinian realism. Mm -hmm. Resources you can find in sort of contemporary philosophy that thinks about, you know, what does it mean for things to persist through time? How can one thing be the same at one time and another time? And issues to do with what's sometimes called identity across time and identity through time. Yeah, um, And there are resources there you can help yourself to to try and tell some story about how it is that we might be united to some greater whole, some greater organism that exists down through the ages that includes the rest of the human race and that distinguishes the human race from other sorts of things, from other sorts of natural kinds and that kind of stuff. That's the part um, that's hard. I think I like yeah. it. I think I, I love that idea of like, yeah, it's what do we really mean by persistence through time and identifying with I'll just move to the so the poetic sort of metaphorical version of right. we are metaphysically or poetically united all the way from the earliest humans to now. And I would say even to the proto humans and the other homo species, right? That to me feels like actually pregnant with meaning mm -hmm. and actually theologically quite robust. And right. I find that actually kind of inspiring. Um, mm -hmm. And I can apply that in all kinds of ways. It's just if I'm trying to do it in this sort of genealogical kind of a way that I think it's, it becomes, it breaks down, not least because the best, the best understanding right now is that the current homo sapien population comes from a minimum of a 10,000 person population at some point. That's like the bottleneck. That's the smallest it ever got um, for modern humans. And you just, I just think you have to do gymnastics to get around that. But, um, but poetically, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so you, so on the Augustinian view, there is some, it is that horseshoe, right? There is some perfection mm. that somebody had at some point, And then yep. we, none of us have that. It's been lost. Right. And somehow right. we inherit that. Yeah. I mean, again, I just think that this is like a needlessly complicated version of the previous one, um. which is simpler, Occam's Razor. Uh, that nobody ever had that perfect original righteousness or justice. I mean, maybe Christ in some in some spiritual sense had that, and and God certainly has that. But we can just be moving toward God. Like we don't. It doesn't matter that that happened before. I don't think I don't see the value. Now I'm just riffing theologically with someone who is far, by far my superior. But um, I don't see the value in having some. Yeah. primordial perfection. Motivate yeah. that for me, Oliver. What is the value in having a point of perfection earlier? Like wh what, what does that bring to the table? It's a sort of um, creation for redemption narrative. I suppose mm -hmm. if you think that it's important that what we're on our way towards, what we're sort of oriented to in terms of a kind of ultimate goal in the world to come, is to be restored to the kind of state that we were created to be in and to go beyond that even, then you might think that having some kind of created benchmark is really important. A bit like you might think, look, if there was a kind of prototype car that has all the kind of whizzy gadgets that we, we want and, and functions perfectly, but somehow between the, the prototype and the production line model, someone has introduced some mistake into the blueprints and and the production line model just doesn't measure up but you've still got this kind of platonic form of the the prototype that really is how the car should be and one day we hope someone can make the changes necessary to the blueprints so that we can get back to that original something like that is the sort of idea i think that motivates that vision of of how to think about 
human beings in relation to some primeval perfect pair or, or at least kind of morally immaculate pair. So say you have an Eastern Orthodox theologian who says, exactly, it's the Logos in John 1. It's Christ. That's the prototype. Like that was here in the person of Jesus and we will reach it and go beyond it. But how how does someone who wants more of the Augustinian view respond to that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, so some people on the Augustinian view are going to just reach for other resources at that point. And they're going to say, human beings are made in the image of God and it's the image of God that's been um, defiled through human sin. And that's what needs to be repaired. Okay. And that's what's repaired through um, reconciliation with God's self through Christ. But I'm like what you were just saying there. I'm, I'm sympathetic to this idea that the image of God is prototypically Christ himself. And that seems to be what we find in the later, new, the later Pauline uh, letters in the New Testament, you know, where Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn right. overall creation. And um, if he's the kind of icon of God, then one way of thinking about that is along these lines that you find in much of the Eastern Church, that, that Christ is something like an interface or a hub between divinity and humanity. And if we are ultimately destined to be partakers of the divine nature, then perhaps Christ is prototypical in more than one way, not just prototypically human, but also prototypically united to God. And although we're not going to be personally united to God, as as Christ is, nevertheless, we, like Christ, will also experience this union with God in in a very intimate way in the world to come. So there are are several ways in which that's a very rich way, I think, of thinking about how it is that it's Christ who's the prototype and we're made in the image of Christ who's the image of the invisible God. Uh, that's that's so beautiful, and it actually makes me feel quite inspired and uh, inflames my hope for that union temporarily. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. it's only it's always only temporary. Um, <laughs> uh, I find in my own mind, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, like is something going on with that more Augustinian view that is potentially blasphemous? In that, are we raising Adam to the level of Christ? Like if Christ is the perfect example, then Adam is not right. Like Adam is not, I know that Jesus is the second Adam, but on a Trinitarian theology, Adam is not the second person of the Trinity, even before he sins. So like if it's perfection, fall and return to perfection, Adam's not perfect, not as Mm -hmm. perfect as Jesus. Mm -hmm. So are we not even getting that power from that view? I suppose it depends, maybe much depends on whether you think Christ is the prototype or Adam's the prototype. And I'm attracted mm-hmm. to the view that it's Christ is the prototype and even some putative Adam and Eve are made in the image of Christ, the invisible God, who's the image of the invisible God. So I think, yeah, I think that's pretty, I think I would say that's an important point. It depends what you think, what you're privileging here, what you think is more fundamental. Do you want to say anything else to round out your view here? Because you said your view is a modified and Selmian view, or is that going to be the next view that we talk about? So, I mean, I think there's actually uh, an interesting overlap between what Anselm says and what some of the reformers say, particularly some like Zwingli. And so my own view is sort of um, part Zwingli, part Anselm, a kind of hybrid of the two. Great. And Anselm's view has been very influential on subsequent Western theology and and then Roman Catholic theology. So that, I mean, there's an interesting uh, kind of confluence of different ideas here. But I mean, in, in essence, as I've already indicated, Anselm's view is that we've lost this original justice or this original righteousness. And um, as a result, we're corrupt. So he's got what some authors uh, like Tom McCall talks, talks of as a corruption only view of original sin. It is not original guilt as well. Right. So con- making sure we're not saying original guilt, but we just, right. our nature is corrupted. Yeah. Right. As, and so we, we've lost original justice. We're morally disordered and therefore we need Christ to bring about human reconciliation. And that disorder gives rise inevitably to human sin. So he's pretty Augustinian in the way that he approaches things, but um, he has a particular kind of Anselmian twist, as is often the case with Anselm. And what's interesting from my point of view is, if you reach forward several centuries into the Reformation, you find a, a not dissimilar view in Huldrych Zwingli, the, the great Swiss reformer, who also thinks that we have something like original sin, which is a kind of corruption 
without original guilt. He often describes it, as I said earlier, as a kind of disease that affects us. And it's that original corruption that gives birth to, to actual sin. So there's some parallel, I think, between those two things. They're not exactly the same, but there's certainly some parallel between the two that, that holds to a kind of corruption-only account without the original guilt component part. And I myself have come to see that that view is preferable to the later view that includes the original guilt component. The whole This whole situation is a little bit silly in that because I have this podcast with a bunch of people who listen and no proper theological training, I get to bring you on. And because I've built up personal goodwill being your friend and basically tell you, you know, however I'd like to, how silly some of the things that you may or may not believe are. And that is just a patently absurd situation. And I only get to do it because I've, you know, amassed some listenership uh, and, and, you know, friendship. But like, I'm not smarter than you. So uh, motivate for me why, for you, there is value in going beyond this sort of developmental ancestral sin model, which I am perfectly happy with and I don't need any more. I don't need any sort of fall from grace. I don't need a prototype in early human history. What am I not seeing that you're seeing, that you're finding something further along the continuum to be more yeah. robust. If I'm absolutely honest with you, I think for me it's ex existential. I mean, I think there's a sense in which, um, from my point of view, the kind of corruption element seems to me to just ring true with how I find the world and how I understand myself and my relationship with other human beings and the way that human beings relate to me. Uh, in other words, that it seems to me that one reason for, that might motivate uh, a stronger kind of original corruption account is just what we see in the world around us, what, how we find the world to be, how we find our own broken relationships with one another to be. Um, to my way of thinking, there is something about human beings that is really broken. And it's not merely that we've got something wrong that could be healed if we just paid more attention to acting differently or behaving in a different way. I'm not trying to caricature the Eastern view. But no, no, it's, it's good. Yeah. I think there's something about human beings that's, that's fundamentally broken and that needs to be fixed and that can't be fixed without some kind of active, significant spiritual surgery. And it's because of that, I think, that I'm, I'm attracted to this more pronounced doctrine of original sin. So perhaps I'm just more gloomy. Perhaps I'm just a, a gloomier kind of uh, of Christian who who thinks that oh, you know, we really are uh, as bad as all that, something like that. That intersects in really interesting ways with, like, for instance, my psychological training. This idea of corruption rings true to you existentially. I, I also yeah. share in a lot of ways that you know that kind of bent toward Kierkegaard and other of the gloomier. Yeah. Christian thinkers and writers, uh, in, in William James's language, I'm, I'm more drawn to the sick soul than the healthy minded <laughs> spirituality. Right. And that's one of my issues with sort of like what I basically call like LA spirituality, Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of it skips, uh, skips past the bullshit and, and the mm -hmm. real corruption and the real evil. And there's honestly a kind of a, a privilege to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm with you there. But I I picked up on this term you used. It requires some act of spiritual surgery, essentially. Mm. It, it requires something really significant to get in there and make yeah. the difference. And I think this is where my psychological training will inevitably rub up against what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm training to do is week in, week out, session by session, slowly over time, helping people heal this stuff. Right. right. And right. that does include spiritual resources and people's faith. Uh, mm -hmm. but it also just includes habit formation and, you know, really sort of scientific stuff like, okay, when you get this stimulus, you act this way, let's switch out that stimulus, you know, getting really nitty gritty nuts and bolts, brass tacks with people. And so I think that where I stopped sort of feeling in alignment with you was on that language of, Act of spiritual surgery. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. 
if you think that the damage to human beings through that's brought about through sin is significant enough, then I suppose it's natural to reach for metaphors of things like surgical procedures. Yeah. But of course, there are different ways in which that problem could be addressed, different ways in which one might conceive of, of the surgical procedure, however, we, or, or however it is that we think about it, the issue itself. Yeah. But I suppose I'm thinking of someone like, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and that kind of Damascus road experience is a sort of paradigm, which is not surprising given the, the kind of situation I find myself in as a reformed Christian. Yeah. That someone like the Paul and, and his experience is a sort of example of, of the sort of kind of gestalt shift that goes on um, when someone moves from a status into a state of regeneration and salvation. And that change, that the, the change that's brought about through regeneration uh, and union with Christ that the Holy Spirit uh, brings about is, it seems to me, one that, that really may be appropriately thought of in terms of a kind of surgery of sorts or repair of sorts which isn't to say that that solves all the problems. And I certainly think that there are all sorts of habits and spiritual disciplines and um, liturgical immersion that we can undergo that help form us as Christians from that point onwards. But it seems to me that the surgical part is an aspect of this larger picture. Yeah, and people experience conversion experiences uh, like Paul's or Paul's being a kind of a prototype People's lives change. I mean, empirically, verifiably, they change. But it's interesting that not everybody has those kinds of experiences, right. you know? And, and and I wonder, you know, there's a little bit of research about, like, attachment style and and sort of how shitty of a childhood you've had uh, yeah. is yeah. plays into that. And so in that sense, yeah, maybe you and I are just at slightly different points on the same continuum about yeah. emphases and all of that. It strikes me that another way to to fortify your view would be against what I was saying is to say, well, making someone's mental health a little better or helping them toward healing and, you know, some sort of like somewhat better life might not be the same thing that we're talking about in terms of this corruption, this existential corruption of our right. character, that that might be sort of window dressing. I, I would push back on that if you were to offer that and say, well, I don't know, what are we what are we measuring here other than loving God and loving neighbor? That seems to me to be the best measurement, and I think therapy can help with that, for instance. I certainly don't think that therapy is window dressing. I have a lot of time for therapy. My, my views on that have changed over the course of the years. I mean, partly as a result yeah. of having worked for nearly a decade at Fuller and, and spending a Fuller seminary, I should say, in yeah. Pasadena, and having spent a lot of time then with the psych faculty there and learning a lot about these things from just hanging out with some of the yeah. psych people and doing various grant things with psych people and, and finding that absolutely fascinating. Seeing that that clinical psychology, psychological culture uh, in a different way as a consequence of that. So, I mean, I certainly think that therapeutic means at our disposal can make a really significant difference in people's lives. There's no question about that. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be misheard on that point. So I think even if you have a view like mine, it's still the case that there are all sorts of therapies that we can bring to bear upon the human condition that can make a significant change to how we are as human beings and how we relate to one another. And to the quality of the lives that we have that is absolutely not mere window dressing, but can really fundamentally address, yeah. you know, deep-seated anxieties and problems and pathologies that human beings have. No question about that. I think it's also worth saying to your earlier point about, you know, not everyone has the experience of Paul on the road to Damascus. Absolutely, of course, that's right. And I think probably most Christians don't have that. And and that actually might be just as much a problem as it is a paradigm. Yeah. But I, I certainly think that, you know, you, you can find people who have no experience or no, no kind of conscious recollection of ever not being a person of faith. You know, they've been a person of faith from the get-go. Yeah, that's me, basically. And I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think that's perfectly feasible. Um, so I certainly wouldn't want to be heard as saying, oh, if Paul's the paradigm, then if our experience doesn't measure up to that yeah, kind of... I didn't think you were saying that Paul. either. Yeah. I just wanted to make that clear. For sure. So <laughs> yeah. we got to get through the... Are there 
more than one more, or are we basically at John Piper, et cetera, as the last view? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that really we're almost there. The last view is basically something like the idea that we're corrupt, we're born with this corruption, and that that inevitably gives rise to actual sin. And then you couple that with a, a kind of original guilt doctrine. So you're you're guilty for just having that corruption, and that's also going to give rise to actual sin, and that makes you doubly guilty. Okay. Why do people want, like, what's the value that people get theologically from adding in original guilt? Well, I think some people uh, think that that's the right way to understand the biblical material, particularly the the Romans 5, 12 to 19 stuff about as an Adam, so in Christ, that right. the right way to think about that is that we are somehow culpable for Adam's sin. And so that that's just a kind of cost of the biblical text, so to speak. But it just, I mean, it just doesn't seem to me that that's something that you can find in, in the biblical text in anything like the obvious way that some people seem to think. This gets to what doesn't work for me about this more extreme or, you know, neo-Calvinist or tulip Calvinism or whatever, however you want to call sort of the like pure, <laughs> pure strength Calvinism yeah. is this idea that if you start calling something like that, just. Mm. If you say, yeah, Oliver, you were born with the guilt from Adam's sin. I think that you have twisted the meaning of the word justice. You, you've bent it so far that it's come all the way back around to be the opposite of justice. And if you think that, then any other language in the Bible that describes God or within the Christian tradition is suspect language. Because if justice can mean literally injustice, then what does goodness mean? What does love mean? God mm. is love, but love might mean hate, <laughs> you okay. know, or like it's just kind of the whole thing breaks down. It becomes just like chaff in the wind. What, mm. what can we anchor in? How's that justice in any measure of the term justice that any society has ever meant by that term? Yeah, I certainly now think that it's problematic to hold that we can be held morally responsible for the action of someone removed from us by a great deal of time and space and whose action we never acceded to and never were complicit in. If anything, Adam's guilty for my sin. If it's going to go one way or the other, <laughs> it's the dude who started the chain. Like, like if yeah. my mom drank yeah. a bunch of alcohol while I was in the womb and I emerged with fetal alcohol syndrome and that impacts my ability to reason and choose well for my life, it impacts my ability to sort of, for instance, I think this has been shown, to hold off on my impulse control, right? right. And to right. like wait for something better, like the marshmallow test with kids. Yeah. Yeah. Then if anything, that's my mom's fucking fault, yes. not right. my fault. Right. It's so right. weird to think it would go the opposite direction under any yeah. circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think 20 years ago I would not have agreed with that, but that's one of the, one of the big changes. Well, we're all growing, Oliver. You're, be, you're <laughs> yeah. becoming more like Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really hope that's true. Theosis. No, I think the more you think about this, the more it does seem seriously problematic to think that somehow I can be held morally responsible for the actions of someone uh, such removed from myself that I didn't acquiesce to. And in, in any other context, we would think that was, was absolutely immoral rather than moral. Uh, so that's a very peculiar uh, conclusion to reach, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to turn it the way it should go, then Adam is like a hundred Hitlers. And he should be right. the most reviled person in human history, mm. not like a hero of the faith. But that's not how the, you know, the author of Hebrews doesn't think of Adam that like there are reasons to not, of course, go that yes. way and think of right. Adam right. as the greatest villain of all time uh, or Eve, which might is more problematic. But like, yeah, that just doesn't. OK, so original guilt to me makes no sense, the least sense of any of the things that we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you have done some interesting work recently around free will and culpability, which directly relates to what we've just been talking about. Give us a, a taste of, of how that sort of connects with this larger question. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an, uh, important ways in which questions about human free will and moral responsibility intersect, theologically speaking, with what we want to say about sin, of course, right? Because normally speaking, we would think that if someone commits a sin or a crime, 
other things being equal, if they're in their right minds, as lawyers say, if they're compost mentis, and they're, you know, they're, they're the ones that have carried out whatever it is that they've done without being under coercion or anything like that, or under the influence of some kind of drugs, then normally speaking, we'd say you are morally responsible for that action. You've committed the sin. You're the one who's culpable. But bound up with that, we tend to think um, that the person is morally responsible precisely because they were free to act in the way they did. So there's a, there's this intersection between, normally speaking, I think intuitively speaking, there's an intersection between what we think of as culpability and freedom and the kind of sins that we commit. So that's a, that's a complex of theological as well as philosophical questions that you know theologians need to address themselves to. And certainly, Alongside thinking a little bit about original sin, I've also been thinking, as you say, about this question of human freedom and human free will and moral responsibility, both in a theological context and also in a philosophical and legal context, because I've been more, more recently been doing some work in legal theory. And it strikes me that there are, there are very important issues here, both on the theological and on the legal and, and philosophical side of things. And what we think about human freedom and um, our responsibility for the things that we do um, has important implications in all these different areas. You can't escape it. And it's kind of a fundamental moral and philosophical and theological issue. Yeah, it's massive. Let me throw one concept out and, and you tell me what some of the consequences of that would be. From a, There's a recent episode, I don't know, maybe within the last year about how free is our will. And I had Bill Newsom from Stanford on to talk about oh, yeah free will. And the the view that he articulated that I am on board with is freedom of will as essentially a a ramp. Again, Mm. you can have more or less free will. Mm. Essentially, uh, you build free will through maturity, uh, proper neurological development, followed by habit formation, maturity, even kind of a Buddhist idea of detachment from from things and suffering, you sort of build up this capacity for greater and greater choice and will, greater and greater agency over your own life. Let's say we were to accept that idea. How can you tie that into to what you've been just talking about and maybe anything from earlier today? Well, so I, I certainly think that that sort of way of thinking about human agency is a fairly good fit with where we started when we were thinking about this kind of Irenaean account of yeah. this kind of patristic account of human development. And it's not surprising that if you read um, Eastern Orthodox theologians, they have a, a very strong view of human freedom and think that it's very important that human beings are the sources of the actions that they perform in order for them to be morally responsible and indeed that as we develop spiritually, so there's a sense in which our spiritual formation, uh, as we're on this trajectory in a Godward direction, so to speak, enables us to make better sorts of choices, better informed sorts of choices in order that we might become more whole and, and morally complete individuals. So that sort of a trajectory is a kind of interesting package, I think, of kind of both moral uh, and theological claims that makes a lot of sense as a whole. People in the more Western Augustinian tradition have tended to have a, you know, consistent with the gloomy picture that I outlined earlier, tended to have a gloomier sort of assessment of human freedom and um, been more willing to countenance the prospect of our um, free will being in some way entangled with the kind of corruption of human nature so that our human freedom is much more problematic, let's say. So on that view more human free will will probably lead to more sin. Like as I get more and more able and capable of using my will, I'll use it on myself. The Bill Newsom version filtered through the Orthodox thing would be like, and what I would say is, no, you're actually more a slave to your sin when you have less capability. But then of course we know of these people who are tremendously self-controlled well, you know, I don't know. It This is a really complex question. Like Putin and Trump, for instance, in mm. some sense, they actually seem to not be very self-controlled mm. and to be acting in their own self-interest all the time in demonstrably kind of evil ways. And they don't seem to be able to like 
not say what's on their mind or like make a blunder in attacking Ukraine in a particular way. <laughs> but then there are other people like maybe the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world who appear to be have a lot of will and agency and use it very poorly. Yeah. So that's man, we can't get into it, I guess. We don't have time. But that's so interesting. No, it is. I, I'm, you could do a whole episode on these things. Yeah. So much interesting stuff. If people want to sort of follow up on any of the stuff that we've been talking about today, yeah. wh where would you point them? Well, there's a really good book that's just recently come out by Tom McCall, and it's called Against God and Nature, The Doctrine of Sin. And before this book, there was a book in the, at the beginning of the 20th century by N.P. Williams on original sin. It was like a comprehensive account of original sin. Nobody had written a, a really good survey of original sin until this one. So uh, Tom's a, a kind of a Wesleyan evangelical, but he does a very fair job of representing different ways of approaching some of the things that we've been talking about. And cool. I would say that's probably the best, most comprehensive account of these things that's in print today. How about any of, you know, any publications of yours or anything that, that we could put links to that are sort of your ongoing work in this area? I, one of the things I've been involved with is a kind of work on the atonement. And um, I wrote a, a book in 2016 called The Word in Fleshed, which was uh, some of the things we've been talking about today, you know, this idea of the Christ coming and healing human nature in a kind of reformed way of thinking is part and parcel of that account. And I'm right now just in the last stages of working on proofs that for a book that will come out later this year, which is the kind of second step of that um, account okay. on the atonement. Cool. participation and atonement which will be out with baker academic later this year all being well so um people might want to look in those places perhaps great we'll have links in the show notes oliver thank you so much for your time man always a pleasure thank you dan it's been great to be with you thanks for having me